Well, if you have your Bibles, I'd be really glad for you to open those up with me to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6. If you brought your own Bible, then fantastic. If you don't have your own Bible, or if you just like to use the one that's in the seat back nearby, there should be a hardback black one like this in a seat back close to you. And you'll be looking for page 859, 859 in that hardback black Bible. Uh, the passage will spill over into the next page, but 859 is the first part where we'll start in just a moment. Uh, it's been a little while since I've mentioned uh, books, uh, at least commended books to you uh, on Sunday mornings. Uh, it's something I very much enjoy doing. I, uh, truth be told, I'm not much of a reader myself in the, in the, in the uh, sense that I don't enjoy just reading, but I love to learn. And so I end up reading a lot. And I found that there are many good and helpful books that will turn our attention toward the scriptures, help us to grow in our understanding of Christ and our understanding of the local church in our understanding of the Christian faith and how to live as Christians in this world. So there's lots of helpful material out there. There's also a lot of unhelpful material. And so what I aim to do is kind of put you towards stuff that I've found to be helpful. That doesn't mean that uh, stuff that I don't mention is necessarily unhelpful. It just maybe is something I haven't come to just yet or haven't read for myself. This morning, though, I would like to point your attention to a book that's a, a recently published one uh, called Deacons. Uh, this little I guess it's kind of a purple color here, but Matt uh, Smethurst wrote this book on deacons. This morning, our passage is going to bring up the, the topic of deaconing a bit, and so I'll be mentioning it. But if you, if you are a deacon, if you have thought about possibly wanting to be a deacon, if you just want to know more about what deaconing is, uh, what the Bible says about deaconing or, or what it means to be a deacon, this is a great introductory book on the subject. There isn't a whole lot in the Bible that, that speaks to specifically what a deacon is or what a deacon ought to do. Uh, but this book does a very good job of summarizing a lot of the helpful material that you'll find in the Bible on the subject. And also some practical uh, wisdom-based um, teaching or instruction on that topic. I've got four copies here and several others in the church library. So if you'd like one, you can come and snag that after the services are with glad for you to take one of those with you. It's free. If you take it, you're just promising to read it some point at some point in the near future. And so that'll be that'll be your way uh, on your own conscience that you'll take put up your end of the bargain. Uh, this morning, though, as we begin our time together in uh, in preaching, I'd like to ask you a question, which I, I often do as I start. And the question I'd like to ask you, especially for those who are members of this church, I know we have some that are guests here today that are not members of, of this church family. Uh, this, the topic today or the passage today is going to be directly, uh, primarily at church members, these uh, members of this church here. But that doesn't mean that you can't learn something or gain something from what's being said here. In fact, I think you can very much. And I hope that you will, that you can attentively. But especially for members of this church, I want to ask you the question of how, how is it that this church will grow? What is it that will convert our lost friends and family members, the people that we love and that are not following Jesus right now? What will convert their hearts? What is it that will cause more churches in East Texas and beyond to be steadfastly united and vigorously healthy? To ask this sort of a question in slightly a different way, I'd like to ask, what can we or any other local church do to produce unity and growth? Think about that for just a second with me. What can you do? What can we do? What can any local church do to produce 
What can we do that will result in unity and growth? Well, I'm going to show my hand early today and tell you that I I believe, I am convinced that the only thing that truly can produce unity and growth among a local church is the Word of God. God's Word is that which produces, uh, brings about, results in unity, true unity and true growth among any local church. God's Word is that power that converts lost sinners and gives those who have no love for the Lord Jesus Christ brand new love for Him. It is God's Word alone. In our passage today, we're going to come across what really is, it seems to me, the very first real problem that existed in the very first church, New Testament church, in the Bible. And we're also going to see how the church gathered together and attempted to resolve this first real problem that they had. I think there's much wisdom and encouragement for us to gain here. And I also think that there's much to challenge and maybe even to correct some of our own thinking from this passage here today. So let's turn our attention to Acts chapter 6. And would you all mind standing with me? We stand for the primary reading of the passage here as one way to show our love for and respect for God's word. So thanks for standing along with me as I read. From Acts chapter 6, I'll start in verse 1 and I'll read down through verse 7. Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. And they set before the apostles, these they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Thank you, Lord, for your word. You can all be seated. The main point that I'm seeking to draw out of this passage, the main point I believe is the point of this passage, is that God unites and grows local churches by his word. God unites and grows local churches by his word. Therefore, word ministry is to be prioritized, guarded, and served with devotion. Word ministry is to be prioritized, guarded, and served with devotion. I have five points today. Some will be a little bit shorter and others a little bit longer, but let's just dive straight into it. The first point, looking especially at verse 1, is growth by the word. We see in verse 1 that Luke, as he's recording these unfolding events across the the storyline of the book of Acts, he says, now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number. Well, disciples is mentioned for the very first time in the book of Acts here. They had been called brothers before. They had been called believers before. And now they're called disciples. 
Luke is referring to Christians as disciples. It seems to me this would be no doubt following Jesus' own language, uh, even from the passage that David Jacks read for us to start our service today. Uh, when Jesus gave the Great Commission, he says, go and make disciples. Disciples being learners, uh, followers, those who are living their lives, following Jesus as their teacher and example. Uh, this then is the way that Christians are depicted throughout the New Testament. Uh, those who are Christians are disciples. Uh, disciples are not some higher class or higher tier of Christians. Right? All Christians are those who follow, learn from, obey, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's the way they're being depicted here in this passage. But there's another curious phrase that we find in verse 1. And that is the way that Luke tells us that it was in, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number. Well, if you've been traveling along the storyline of Acts with us, then maybe you know exactly what days he's referring to. But that's the question, I think, that arises. In what days? Well, what was going on among this increase in the number of disciples? Well, what was going on is what we just read about not too long ago when we were going through uh, Acts chapter 5 uh, and, and even uh, prior to that, where it was a time when there was, there was something of a, a persecution. There was definitely the threat of severe persecution against the apostles, those who were preaching and teaching in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. In Acts chapter 5, verse 40, the apostles had been arrested and threatened not to speak in the name of Jesus. So those who were in religious authority, they were threatening the disciples and they even beat them as a sort of a, hey, don't forget that we, we have this sort of authority over you and if you don't want worse, you'll stop doing what you're doing. But in spite of uh, the, the persecution and opposition that the apostles were facing, these days also included the very times in which the apostles were every day, Acts chapter 5, verse 42, in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. As we talked about recently, this phrase, the Christ is Jesus, is a sort of summary of the gospel. They were arguing that Jesus is the Messiah that was prophesied of old. Uh, this Messiah or Christ, this anointed one of God. They were saying that is Jesus. That's who he is. This one that God had been saying from, from uh, ages ago, this one who was going to come and make all things right, this one that had been prophesied as early as Genesis 3.15, whenever sin first entered into creation, and God's very first curse is a promise that there's going to be one who's going to be bruised. His heel will be bruised, but he will bruise the head of the serpent. Uh, in God's curse upon humanity for sinning against him, indeed his curse upon all creation for sinning against him, God lays this seed of a promise right there as early as Genesis 3.15, where there's going to come one at some point, some way, that we don't know exactly how, where God is going to make all of this right through an offspring, through a seed. As the Old Testament unfolds, we see more and more prophecies about this one who is to come, this seed who's going to make all things right. He's not only going to be uh, the seed of the woman, but he's going to be one who is the perfect prophet who speaks the very words of God. He's going to be the ultimate king who rules and reigns with righteousness. He's going to be the perfect priest who serves as the intermediary, who serves as the, the media, mediator, the go-between, uh, between sinful humanity and a holy and righteous God. And then Jesus shows up on the scene. 
this long-awaited Messiah, this long-awaited Christ. And he is declared to be the Christ. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his position. It's his office. It's his identity, who he is. And John the Baptist cries out when he sees Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's in Jesus that all of the prophecies about this Messiah or this Christ, are, they, they all culminate in the Lord Jesus Christ, who, who does and fulfills everything that God prophesied about this one who would come. Indeed, he fulfills every one of God's laws, requirements, and he serves as the sacrificial lamb in the place of guilty sinners like us. Friends, this is the, the core central message of Christianity. This is the core central message of Christians right from the very beginning and down through the ages. This is the central message that gathers us here this morning, is that we recognize that we are sinful and that God is holy and we deserve his justice. And apart from the Lord Jesus Christ, we, are, we have nothing to look forward to except God's righteous indignation, his wrath because we are guilty sinners. But because there is a marvelous Savior, Jesus Christ, who is the Christ, the Messiah, the one who has solved our problem of sin and guilt, we can now know that by and through Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, that we can approach the Father, uh, God as our Father, because of what Jesus Christ has done. This is marvelous news, and this was the news that the apostles were preaching, despite what all opposition that they were facing. It didn't matter what anybody else said. This is the message of life. This is the message, that, the message that changes everything. And so they would not stop preaching it. All right, so in the midst of all of that, in those days when this opposition was coming against them and this message of life was so tangible in their midst, they just recently seen with their own eyes, Jesus uh, solved the problem of sin and guilt in the world by showing himself to be the Christ. And now they're proclaiming this message. It was in the midst of that, that the disciples were increasing in number. And we're told right here in the passage, right there in verse 1, that that's what was happening. The disciples were increasing. Even in the threat of opposition, because this message changes everything, there were those who were saying, we'll sign up for that. And the disciples were increasing. It is interesting to note that it is by and through the word of God, the proclaimed word of God, especially the gospel, that's always uh, the increase of the disciples. Let's think about where we've already been so far. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, those who converted to Christianity on the day of Pentecost were those who received the word. And there were added that day, we're told, about 3,000 souls. Later, when Peter was speaking in the temple, or near the temple to the people in Jerusalem, many of those, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 and 4, many of those who had heard the word believed. And those then who were believers, they were added, and the number came, we're told, in Acts chapter 4, to about 5,000. And even still, as we've already been talking about, when the disciples and the apostles were told that they were to speak no more to anyone the words about Jesus, their response was not, well, I guess we, you know, we've done everything we can do. But rather, their response was to gather the whole church together and to pray that God would grant them boldness to not stop, but instead to continue to speak his word with boldness. This is near the end of Acts chapter 4. And of course, at the beginning of our passage, we read that the ministry of the word was continuing on and that the, what, what it produced was the increase 
in the number of the disciples, verse 7. Growth by the word is what we're observing here in this passage. But there was a problem that materialized. This brings me to point number two. A problem materialized. We see also there in verse one as it continues on. In these days when the number of disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Uh, As we've read about already in the interaction that's happening among the church there in Jerusalem throughout the book of Acts at at this beginning portion, uh, there were those who had extra uh, finances, resources. They were uh, giving of their own in order to meet the needs of their fellow Christian brothers and sisters. Some were even selling their own property and and their own surplus in order to to, to give and to contribute to this, this pile that was going to meet the needs of their fellow believers. Among this distribution, it seems this daily distribution was something of a of a food handout, particularly to those who were widows, uh, women who had lost their husbands, uh, either at a young or old age, uh, were particularly vulnerable in the culture and society in which uh, these folks lived. And so it was essential that they would be cared for by their fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. And this was the way that they were doing it, is that daily they were ensuring that they were fed. They were, they, they were sustained. But we see some interesting uh, phrase or, or words here in this passage, depending on your translation. There is either a one or maybe more than one word that, that shows up. So I want us to understand this scene a little bit. Let's, let's dive into it uh, just a little and have some, some history lesson that will help unpack some of this for us. So we see first, we're introduced to this group that's called the Hellenists in the English Standard or the Hellenistic Jews in the North American uh, Standard. Uh, sorry, the, yeah, the, the NASB. Or the Grecian Jews in the NIV. These different translations, or maybe yours says something slightly different. This wasn't just another language group. though. That's primarily what the word means. It means they spoke uh, Greek rather than Aramaic, which was the common language of the Hebrews of that day. But it was more than that that was behind this, this word Hellenists or Hellenistic Jews, Grecian Jews. Uh, Alexander the Great, who lived from 356 to 323 B.C., He conquered the known world of his time. His kingdom stretched from the western border of modern Turkey into the land of present-day India, so a giant span. And even from the western border of modern Egypt to the northeastern border of present-day Iran. Again, an incredibly large span of land uh, for this day or that. But Alexander, he was not only really excellent at conquering lands, he conquered the people of the land which he conquered. But uh, what he did in order to rule so widely and such a diverse variety of different people groups is he implemented something that has been come to uh, come to be known as Hellenization. And that is what Alexander would do is when he came into a, a new land, conquered a new people, he would he would essentially bring in the culture and the religion and the language of the Greeks. And he would make that new people group Greek. So you're you're now going to take on a new identity. Uh, Who you used to be is beside the point. You are now part of the Grecian Empire, Alexander's Empire. Uh, He would coerce the implementation of everything that it meant to be Greek. Now, after Alexander died, he left his kingdom to four of his top generals. And eventually, several, well, some some years later, uh, Rome began to take some of the western portions of the Greek lands. But Rome, instead of doing what Alexander did and 
changing everything about the way of life that the people knew. What Rome was really good at doing was just sort of adapting whatever was existing and making that Roman. Uh, so the Romans, the Romans just took whatever you already had and just called it now, oh, this is Roman now, rather than what it used to be. So Hellenists were ethnically Jews in this context in which we're reading in Acts chapter 6. But in every other sense of the word, they were Greeks. So they, they had the same family lineage as their Hebrew brothers and sisters. But in every sense of the word, they were actually Greek or Roman. Now the Hebrews, or the native Hebrews, or the Hebraic Jews, again, depending on your translation, it might say something slightly different. These were more than just distant relatives of the Hellenized Jewish brethren that they were encountering. So to do a little history on them as well, back in 164 BC, there was something called the Maccabean Revolt. And further Jewish victories, even after this, caused Jerusalem to now be a Jewish theocracy once again in 141 BC. So we're thinking BC, before the time of the Lord Jesus Christ, about 140 years before that, uh, there was the reestablishment of Jerusalem as a Jewish theocracy. But about 60 years before the birth of Jesus... The Roman general Pompey, he captured or recaptured Jerusalem and put it subject, uh, subjected the Jews there to foreign governance yet again. This time, Rome was their governor instead of uh, Alexander and his empire. So the Jewish leaders and many Jewish people, they were unwillingly, uh, they unwillingly tolerated their Roman governors and the Roman society, which engulfed them. But some Jewish people simply became Roman. Or to use the colloquial language, they Hellenized. Uh, So they just adopted this new culture that was being imposed on them. Now, to those who stayed true to their Hebrew Hebrew roots, this was treason. Uh, This was no small thing. This was betrayal. Uh, Think about the way that in the New Testament, we we commonly would hear this, this phrase of the kind of person who's a tax collector. And how horrible that is. Well, that was someone who was of of Jewish ethnicity but who purchased from Rome the ability to tax his his fellow Jewish brethren and to make money on them being citizens of Rome. This was horrific in the eyes of the Jews who were underneath Roman rule at this time. Well, during Jesus' earthly ministry and during the early time of Christianity, uh, those Jews who had maintained their Jewish identity, their culture, their religion, and their language, which again was Aramaic at that time, they had no love for the Jews who had Hellenized, either by coercion or by expedience, just because it was a bit easier to live life that way. So this was the the kind of cultural um, uh, situation in which we find now, among Christians, there is the majority group who are the Hebraic Jews, right? These who have have stayed true to their, their native ethnicity. And there's the minority group of those who are Jewish Christians, Uh, So they're Jewish by ethnicity. They've converted to Christianity, but they're, in every sense of the word, they're Greek by culture. These are the minority group. And it's those Greek Jewish people, uh, those those Hellenized Jewish folks, who are saying, hey, we're being left out. Uh, we're, We're the cultural minorities among this Christian gathering, and it's our widows who are not being dealt with well. It does seem, though, based on the way the the passage unfolds, and also because Luke doesn't mention any intentionality behind here, it seems like this was quite likely uh, an honest administrative oversight. So we don't want to read too much into the potential 
conflict that was there, except to recognize that it was a real opportunity for division and disunity. So it was a real opportunity for division and disunity for at least four reasons that I can tell. One, because the daily distribution was a very important testimony of Christian love. And if anybody was being neglected or overlooked, that was a real problem. That was a real shame. It it was saying something other than what was true of Christian love. Christian love doesn't neglect, it doesn't overlook, it, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, um, not care for those that are in need, those who are the minority, but rather Christian love does exactly the, the going into the hard situation, the making sure that no one is overlooked, making sure that everyone is cared for well, so that there was anyone who was being overlooked was a real problem. In addition, the Hellenists, those who were the Greek-speaking Jews, they could have easily assumed malicious intentions on the part of the majority. No doubt this is the way they were treated outside of the church. That the majority would, would treat them maliciously. There would be nefarious intentions on the part of the majority toward the minority. So they could have assumed it's like this outside the church. Certainly it's the same way. What else should we expect? They certainly could have done that. The Hebrews, the Hebraic Jews, they could have sort of in their arrogance and in their, you know, kind of thinking we're, we stay true to our roots and here you guys have headed off in a wrong direction. Well, they could have said, well, you know what? It serves you guys right. They certainly could have defended their position against their societal and political enemies. Indeed, a fourth aspect of this whole situation is one to not overlook. And that is that the whole church could have risen up and and kind of uh, blamed the apostles. You guys are messing this thing up. They're the ones responsible for the distribution. What's going on, guys? Certainly, there are real opportunities for this unity in this passage, and it's not something to be overlooked or taken lightly. I'd like to just mention in passing that such opportunities for disunity and division among local churches is a possibility of every age. So the same kind of cultural conflict that was potential here in Acts chapter 6, the same kind of administrative neglect, the same kind of emotional and, and relational dysfunction that's possible in the daily and common interactions of of regular everyday humans, all of that is possible in every single church age, in every church of every age. So we should be be aware that what the church there in Acts chapter 6 is facing is not unique to them, but something that we all face. And we all should recognize the possibility that there could have been real division here, real dysfunction, real disunity. But that wasn't what resulted Rather, there was a pleasing solution. This is point number three, a pleasing solution. We see there in verses two and three that the 12, referring to the apostles there, the 12 summoned the full number of the disciples and they said, it's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, here's the solution they picked. Brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. I would like to highlight the reality that in this passage, we see the gathering of the full number of the disciples. Uh, For those of you who know me uh, fairly well, you will know, or maybe if you don't know me well, just know me a little bit. It's not long before I start talking about the importance of the gathered local church or the local church specifically. Indeed, right here in the passage, we see that though it is popular among many folks who are New Testament uh, scholars or theologians or pastors or church leaders, it's very popular for folks to highlight the house-to-house preaching and teaching ministry of the New Testament, even the book of Acts, which we read about at the end of Acts chapter 5. 
But it seems to me that often those folks overlook the occasions, one in which we find right here in Acts chapter 6, when the whole church, all of the disciples, the whole number of them, even in the multiple thousands, gathered together. So for us to just assume that because a lot of them, it just wasn't possible for them to all gather together. So they must have been in house churches in the early church days. Right here in our passage, we see an example of them gathering all of them together at one time. So to assume that they only did this on this one occasion is just an assumption that is more than the text will give us. Right here, we see an example of them gathering together. In our passage right here in verse 2, the apostles summoned the full number of the disciples together. And in Acts chapter 6, verse 5, we see that this decision, this plan that they came up with, it pleased the whole gathering. So not only did they gather together in one place at one time, the multiple thousands that were, that were this, uh, the congregation early here in, in Acts chapter 6, but they were even able to make a decision where they were, they were able to recognize in some way or another, I don't know how, maybe they raised their hands to vote, but some way or another, the entire congregation expressed their pleasure at the solution that the apostles had come up with. Another point that I'd like to emphasize, which we'll, we'll uh, see in just a moment, is that uh, what we see in this passage, I think, is an informative passage on what's, uh, what's referred to as church polity or governance or structure. Now, let me be quick to say that there's much in the book of Acts that is unique. The apostolic period is a unique period. So it's not that we should read everything in the book of Acts and think, oh, we should exactly see that in the exact same way in our own time and in our own culture. This was a unique time in the transition from the old covenant to the new. When Jesus, the risen Lord Jesus Christ, was commissioning capital A apostles to be his spokesman in the world. This is a unique time and a unique period. But we do see displayed here, so we see an indicative passage. This is what did happen. It indicates something that happened. And then we see other passages throughout the New Testament that are imperative passages, which teach us to do certain things. And we see them both line up well together, I think. So in Acts chapter 6, we see what is uh, taught or instructed elsewhere in the New Testament. Therefore, I think we can see something of a, an instructive example, an instructive example for us here in Acts chapter 6. So what are, what are the instructions that we might see here, or the example that we might see for other instructions later on? Well, two things I want to highlight. One, what did the apostles do? And two, what did the congregation do? Well, the apostles, they were leading as elders or overseers of this church there in Jerusalem. And what did they do? Well, they summoned the whole church to gather. They made a plan They called upon the church to act and they directed the appointment of practical administrative servants. These folks that we'll refer to here in just a moment as proto-deacons. But what did the congregation do? Well, they followed, but they didn't follow mindlessly. Uh, They didn't just rubber stamp what the apostles were leading them to do. They, in fact, followed as glad and thoughtful participants. They were told to pick out seven men to serve. They recognized that prayer and the ministry of the word was something to be guarded, something to be prioritized. And they, among the congregation, interestingly, chose seven Hellenized men to be the ones to lead now the daily distribution. This is a really interesting aspect of what the congregation did of their own of their own initiative. We'll get to that a bit more here in just a little while. But as I said, I want to I want to say that I believe this passage aligns perfectly with the polity teaching that we read about throughout the New Testament, say in 1 Corinthians 5 or Ephesians chapter 4 or Hebrews 13 or 1 Peter 5 or many other 
passages. So what do we see here then in this appointment of servants? Well, the word for deacons, the word from which we get deacons, diakonos, is not in the passage. But the verb deaconing, as we might translate it, or as we see service or ministry, that's the, a noun of what the deacons are, are doing. Those words are, are prevalent throughout the passage. So as I said before, Christians have understood this passage to depict what, what is commonly referred to as proto-deacons or the first deacons. Though deacon specifically is not mentioned there, deaconing is all throughout the passage. So folks have recognized, hey, this is, this is really kind of the first division of labor between elders and deacons in a local church. No doubt, 1 Timothy chapter 3 emphasizes the characteristics or qualifications for deacons. This passage does not do that, uh, not as much as 1 Timothy 3, but this does distinguish the roles between elders and deacons. So let's see how the roles are distinguished. In verse 4, we see that the apostles, again, these were serving as pastors, elders, of the church in Jerusalem, and they were to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So verse 4 explicitly has in the underneath the responsibility category of the apostles, who again were acting as the leaders or overseers, the pastors, elders of the local church there, they were to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. Now, those who were appointed as servants to the duty of this daily distribution well, they were to attend this daily benevolence distribution of help and aid or to, in verse 2, as the apostles put it, to serve tables. So again, that book that I mentioned a little while ago, uh, Deacons by Smethers, he mentions three things that deacons must do. Just really quickly, he says, deacons spot and meet tangible needs, which the deacons in this passage did, spotted and met tangible needs. He says deacons promote and protect church unity. You see, the problem was there was potential dysfunction, disunity, division among the local church, and deacons were assigned in order to make sure that that didn't happen, that this need was taken care of in a practical way, and so deacons protected and promoted church unity. Number three, Matt Smethers says, the deacons serve and support the ministry of the elders. And so the pastor's elders, in this case the apostles serving in the church there in Jerusalem, what they were to do was to pray to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And so these deacons, proto-deacons, were assigned the task of handling this practical need in order to free up the pastor's elders, in this case the apostles, to serve in the ministry that was their responsibility. Notice also the importance or emphasis that's on character in this passage. I said 1 Timothy 3 gives us a more clear depiction of what character uh, the kind of folks who serve as deacons ought to have. But right here in our own passage, we see something of the emphasis on character in verse 3. Uh, the apostles say to the congregation there in Jerusalem, the church there, to pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom. Men of good repute, full of the Holy Spirit and full of wisdom. There's the emphasis on character there. Peter doesn't say, the apostles don't say to the church, Pick out guys who are really good at finance. Pick out guys who are really handy with administrative tasks. Uh, pick out guys who, who are a wizard with a ratchet. That's not the kind of uh, description that we see here, but rather it's character that is the interest first and foremost. 
in 1 Timothy 3. You can read this passage later on if you like, but 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 to 10, we read even more about the character interest of those who would serve as deacons. Deacons, likewise, we're told there, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first. Then let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. So it's important that those who are given responsibility, especially formal responsibility among a local church, first and foremost, be folks of good character. It's far more important than our skill or ability. Certainly skill and ability, they, they uh, have uh, a certain weight placed upon them. Uh, you don't want someone who is working on some sort of construction project who doesn't know the difference between a saw and a hammer. But nevertheless, you want those who are given formal responsibilities in a local church setting, you want them to be folks of good character. Uh, one last thing that, uh, about this before we move on to the next point, and that is, as I said before, the, the congregation, they show themselves to be thoughtful participants in this whole exchange here in the way that they choose these seven people in particular. These seven folks all have names that are Greek names, which strongly implies that six of them were Hellenized Jews of the minority group among the local church. And the seventh one, who was not a Hellenized Jew, wasn't Jewish at all. He's Nicholas, who's a proselyte from Antioch. He's Greek altogether. So there were, of all the seven that they chose from among them, every one of them were if you think about the way that, that we sometimes are, are prone to think about the way you, you solve problems, well, what you do is you, is you get maybe some, some mediators, right? Some folks who can kind of represent each party who's, who's a part of this disagreement and, and kind of make known the, the grievances and the desires of each party here. But that's not what the church did. The church didn't get together and put, you know, a three from this group and three from this group and, and try to, you know, have some kind of a, an argument in between to make sure everybody was covered. Rather, the majority ethnic group in this congregation, they picked seven folks from the minority group and they gave them charge to ensure that this would be taken care of. This expresses, it seems to me, at the very least, a very thoughtful participation on the part of the congregation. They could have picked any number of seven guys who were of good reputation, who were filled with the Holy Spirit, and who were filled with wisdom. There were certainly a good number of them there among the thousands that were gathered, and they picked seven who would represent the minority. An interesting aspect of their participation there. Moving on, though, uh, we want to see in uh, point number four, the emphasis of word ministry. So we've seen the, the delegation of the responsibilities to these, these folks who would serve among the church family to meet the practical needs of the congregation, but this was in order to emphasize the importance of word ministry. We see this also in verses two through four. The 12 summoned the full number of the disciples together and they said, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Not in a condescending way, not that they're too good for that task down there, but rather prioritizing the preaching of the word. And then also in verse four, but we will, after, after assigning these servants to the task, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. Three points I want to make underneath this, this so three subpoints, and that is that the word ministry is prioritized, it's guarded, and it's served with 
devotion. It's prioritized. We see that in verse 2. It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. A practical need among the congregation, either an individual church member's need or the collective congregation's practical needs, must never be allowed to intrude on a local church's word ministry. Uh, I'm so thankful that, that we as a congregation uh, affirm and encourage so much the word ministry of this church. I'm very glad that that is, by and large, the perspective, that, at least that's voiced as far as I can tell, among our church family. But it is no, it is no slight to the practical needs of our church family for those who are bearing the responsibility of overseeing and administering the word ministry to not give time to the practical needs in order to prioritize the preaching and teaching and prayer needs of our congregation. So this, this has implications for what we should all expect our budget to look like, for what we should all expect our, our church to do, specifically our church office, if you think of it in those sorts of terms. This has implications for the sense of responsibility that some of us in this room right now might feel to rise up and to meet various needs. So it is, it is with, with great joy that I get to serve as the senior pastor alongside other pastors, elders among this church family, where there are a lot of needs that are met among this church family that I don't even know about. And I'm so thankful for that because it frees up those who are given the responsibility of prayer and word ministry, the primary responsibility of prayer and word ministry, to, to be free to engage in these weightier matters. A second point, sub-point underneath this point number four, is that word ministry was guarded. It was guarded by the very congregation that was gathered and enjoying the benefits of this word ministry. How did they guard it? Well, they guarded it by picking out from among them seven folks who would be appointed to the duty of meeting the practical needs. So how can members of this local body guard the word ministry? Well, maybe you could look around and see practical needs that need to be met and you could begin to meet them. Uh, maybe you could voice your own desire to spend your own time and treasure and talent to meet practical needs among the congregation and ask one or more of the pastor's elders how, what, meet, what needs are there and, and how might you be able to help meet them. Uh, these would be ways that you, can certainly, that you can certainly do that. But the congregation then is the one who guards the word ministry. Uh, so, so frequently, local churches can be those who not only don't guard the word ministry, but steal away from the very word ministry that nourishes and edifies them by requiring of vocational or lay, lay pastors, elders alike, uh, that they do things that are, that are pulling them away from word and prayer ministry. Again, I'm so thankful that this congregation is one that doesn't do that. Uh, word ministry number three is served with devotion in our passage. So the pastor's elders, in this case the apostles, who were serving as such in the church there in Jerusalem, uh, they weren't freed from meeting practical needs in order for them to, you know, go on vacation all the time, for them to do nothing. But rather, they were freed up in order to devote themselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. They were devoting themselves to this. Uh, this was no small task. This was something that they were devoting time and attention, and care too. It's very interesting that prayer and ministry of the word are, are nearly a tandem partners here. It seems to me that, that one comes along with the other. 
they both express a desperate need for and dependence upon God to do what only he can do. Both prayer and word ministry do that. When we pray, we're acknowledging our dependence upon God and our need for him to do the work that only he can. We need you, God, to work, and so we're asking you to work. So too does word ministry do that. Because word ministry, as we'll see in just a moment, word ministry is, a, is an implicit declaration that no amount of wisdom that I could just conjure up, no amount of life experience that I could dump out on you, none of that is going to be sufficient to solve the problems that we have. But rather, what is going to solve our problems? What is going to meet our needs? What is going to nourish us? What is going to correct us? What's going to guide us? It's the word of God. And so word ministry then, focusing on the ministry of the word, just like prayer, is a declaration that we are utterly dependent upon the Lord. We need his help and we are crying out to him. Point number five, and the last one for this morning, continued growth by the word. Continued growth by the word. Verse seven concludes. You'll see that at the beginning of this passage and at the conclusion of this passage, there's what? There's the increase of the disciples. There's the growth of those who are being converted. That's at the beginning and at the end with the problem in between. Again, we don't want to minimize the problem. We want to recognize this was a real problem, a real opportunity for division and disunity, but it was resolved. It was resolved how? By prioritizing, by guarding, and by devoting themselves, those who were in charge, those those who were leading, to word ministry. And what happened? Continued growth. That's the result. Verse 7 tells us, And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And even a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Those very ones who were opposing the gospel there in Jerusalem. Note the interesting way that Luke words this passage. Verse 7. It was the word of God which increased. And then so too did the number of the disciples increase as well. The word of God increased. The teaching and preaching and power of the word of God increased, and that's what produced the increase of the number of the disciples. I want to acknowledge a perennial temptation uh, that we all have that a passage like this highlights for us. We see in a passage like this, the number of the disciples multiply greatly. And we all want to see that. We want to see that not just in Acts 6, we want to see that in our own day. We want to see the number of disciples multiply greatly, don't you? I do. I want to see our friends, our family members, our loved ones, people in this community that I haven't met. I want to see them come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to see them hear the gospel and respond with with repentance, turning away from sin and faith, belief, following the Lord Jesus Christ. And what should we do? Well, we should look to the Bible to see what is our part. And so we look to the book of Acts and we see what is the formula? Well, the formula is the preaching and teaching of the word. So we see the formula there. We attempt to apply the formula in our own day. And then we don't get the results that we see in the book of Acts. And so what is our temptation? Well, our temptation is to imagine that we must have done something wrong. Uh, There's got to be some other thing. We're not saying that we should not do the preaching and teaching of the word. Of course, we should do that. But there's, there's got to be something else that we add to it. Uh, some package that we have to put around it. 
something we have to do in order to produce the results because the preaching and teaching, we did that stuff and it didn't work, we think to ourselves. We don't get the numerical results that we want. So we assume that we must be missing some other ingredient. This is the common assumption among many of those who would write and teach and preach what's commonly referred to as church growth strategies or church growth methodologies. I'll just mention two books. Uh, One is by Gary McIntosh, his book that's called There's Hope for Your Church. And another is Robert Dale's book. His book is How to Help Your Church Come Alive to Dream Again. These both are very common among the church growth uh, and and, um, uh, methodological and strategic kind of books that teach pastors and church leaders. Here's how your church can grow. Gary McIntosh said that God has told us the what, go and make disciples. But he says, it's up to us to determine the how. This kind of assumption is all throughout church growth methodologies. The task is to make disciples, but really it's pragmatism. How do we figure out uh, how to do this thing? What sort of strategy do we want to use? What works? That's the assumption. So he says, one way to understand vision, uh, that, that this is what every church needs is a vision, is to see the intersection. So here's how you come up with what vision you need for your local church in order to, to get it to grow. You need to see the intersection of pastoral leadership, the passion and gifts of the congregation, and the community needs. So you do a demographic search for what's going on in your community around you. You kind of survey the 